This morning we are finishing up our series on Christmas prophecies. Uh, today we're going to be focusing on Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. Uh, this passage really contains one of the best-known prophecies about the Messiah in the Bible. Uh, matter of fact, I think I probably see verse 6 listed more often than maybe any other scripture uh, at this time of year, whether it's uh, Christmas cards, Facebook posts, various things. I mean, this is, the, this is kind of the go-to verse. I mean, it's such a glorious passage. But really, like all the rest of the prophecies of the Messiah, it has a context, and the context is important. The context of Isaiah 9 is really similar to the context we saw last week when we studied Micah chapter 5. The prophet Micah was confronting the people of Judah with their sin against God. Their civil leaders, their prophets, their priests, the people as a whole were all living in sin and disobedience to the Lord. They were guilty before God. And as a result, the Lord was bringing judgment on them through the Assyrian and ultimately through the Babylonian armies. It was in that context that Micah spoke of a child who was to be born in Bethlehem. A child whose goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. A child who would be ruler in Israel. A child who would be their strong shepherd. Well, the context in Isaiah 9 is similar. The people of Judah were in a time when Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel were threatening to destroy them, not to even mention the Assyrians, which came into picture as well. But the people and their king were not willing to trust the Lord. At the end of Isaiah chapter 8, the prophet said that those who insisted on, re on re rejecting the law and testimony of God would be in great distress. They would be in time of darkness and anguish. And it's in that context that the good news of Isaiah 9 is given. I was tempted just to focus on verses 6 and 7, but to give a fuller picture, we really need to start in verse 1. So that's what we're going to do. But there will be no more gloom for who, her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. These are very, very hopeful verses. The very first sentence begins with a contrast with what had just been said in chapter 8. It says, But there will be no more gloom for who 
for her who was in anguish. And then Isaiah mentions specifically the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. These two territories are in the northern part of Israel. And as it's uh, further pointed out in verse 1, they were on the west side of the Jordan River and extended to the Mediterranean Sea. The reality is that when nations from the north, like Assyria and Babylon, when they would attack Israel, geographically speaking, this would be the first place they would come. So this particular region, known also as Galilee, was especially treated with contempt. But Isaiah says there will be no more gloom for these people. Instead, the Lord would make this place glorious. And look at what he promises in verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Well, what was the great hope that was to come on these people? Well, the Apostle Matthew makes that very clear to us when he quotes this very verse in reference to the ministry of Jesus. It's over in Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to pick up in verse uh, in verse. 13. This is speaking of, uh, of Jesus' uh, well, starting in verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. Those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew is speaking of the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And he intentionally begins his ministry in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. As a matter of fact, a large percentage of his teachings, a large percentage of his miracles took place in the very region that Isaiah is speaking of. And Matthew tells us very specifically, very pointedly, that this happened in fulfillment of what Isaiah the prophet had spoken here in chapter 9. So in order to give the people, especially the faithful remnant of Isaiah's day, to really give them hope, Isaiah spoke of even more glorious things that the Messiah would accomplish over 700 years in the future. We can sum up the blessings that Isaiah refers to in verses 1 to 5 in this way on your outline. In the midst of a prophecy of judgment, Isaiah speaks of blessings promised through the coming Messiah. The blessings include light for those in darkness, joy to those in the gloom of anguish, and liberty to those who are oppressed. So, Why would the Lord inspire Isaiah to talk to these people about the person and work of the Messiah, again, 700 plus years before he was coming into the world? Well, it's because the only way that God can be gracious to people in sin is through Jesus Christ. Since the days of Adam and Eve, we have all been born into sin. We are all sinners, and as sinners, we deserve God's judgment. But from the beginning, right after Adam's sin... God gave the promise of a Messiah to come. He's the one who would make sacrifice for sin, who would bring defeat to Satan, deliverance for the people of God. But these blessings could only come through the Messiah. 
So the blessings of salvation that God gave to people, really hundreds and even thousands of years before Christ, those blessings could only come because there was a Savior who would come and purchase those blessings. Now there's three blessings in particular that Isaiah focuses on in verses 2 through 5. First one is this in verse 2. He speaks of light. The people who live in darkness will see a great light. An important aspect of the darkness that these particular people were experiencing was an, Ass- uh, an Assyrian invasion that was, that was to come. But that was really only an illustration of a more profound darkness, a darkness that is found within our hearts. It's a darkness that's brought on by turning away from the Lord and turning away from His Word. It was the darkness and deception that sin brings into the human heart. Says so we've already noted, the light that is being referred to here is the light that came through the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus brought the good news of salvation to those who were living in sin. He gave them insight into their need. He also gave them insight into their need for repentance and faith in Christ. Well, the second blessing Isaiah speaks of is in verse 3. It says, You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, and with, with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So this verse speaks of increasing in gladness. And he says it's like the gladness of getting a good harvest or dividing the spoil from a victory. Back in chapter 8, verse 22, which is the very last verse of chapter 8 leading into chapter 9, Isaiah spoke there of the gloom of anguish for these people. But now he speaks to them of joy and gladness. More to the point, he says, they will be glad in your presence, that is, in the presence of the Lord. One of the consequences of sin is misery, disappointment, being downcast, being hopeless. And it's ultimately through the gospel that real joy can come. It's in Christ that sin is forgiven and guilt is taken away. A relationship with the Lord is the source of true joy. It's not like a constant giddiness. Sometimes we kind of misunderstand what joy is. There's going to be struggles. There are always going to be struggles. But there is a foundational joy and resting in and gladness in the gospel of Jesus Christ and what He has done in our lives and who He is in our lives. The third blessing is that of liberty to those who were oppressed. We find that in verses 4 to 5. It says, You shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. Now these verses especially help us to see a connection with the invasion of the Assyrian army and the deliverance that was going to come. And I think that that the immediate fulfillment of the promise of liberty took place in a time when Judah was delivered from an Assyrian attack. And that deliverance is described in Isaiah chapters 36 and 37 in some detail. Jerusalem was surrounded by the Assyrian army, and just really there was no hope of escape. Huge army. But God miraculously delivered them. And he uses the example here of when, uh, of when they were delivered from Midian. Midian is, how, is when God used Gideon to bring deliverance, and you, you may remember how, how God did that. Gideon was only to have 300 men, 
and they were armed with torches and trumpets against a massive Midian army. And God gave them a miraculous victory over that Midianite army. But with the Assyrians, we are told later that the angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 Assyrian troops as they camped, were camped around Jerusalem. 185,000 soldiers. When the people of Jerusalem woke up the next morning, the Assyrians were all dead. They then took the booty for themselves. They burned everything else with fire, just like it says here in verse 5. It's also interesting to note that it was the angel of the Lord who was responsible for that victory, who brought death among, in the Assyrian camp among all those soldiers. Well, the angel of the Lord is generally understood to be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. So this completely God-centered victory over the Assyrians is meant to be seen as a picture of Jesus Christ's victory over sin and judgment at the cross. It's a victory that brings true liberty. So the light, the joy, and the liberty spoken of in verses 1 to 5 allude first off to that amazing deliverance that would come against the Assyrians at a later time. But it is very clear that that is not all Isaiah had in mind. We have already seen how, my, how Matthew specifically saw the ultimate fulfillment coming in Jesus' public ministry in Galilee. And then in verses 6 and 7, Isaiah makes a very clear and definite connection with the promised Messiah. So let's start with reading verse 6 here. For a child will be born to us, and the son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. It is this child, it is this son that is the true source of light, of joy, and of liberty that was all referred to in verses 1 through 5. We can never attain those blessings by anything we do. They are blessings that only Jesus Christ can provide for us. And the descriptions given here of, of the Messiah, of the child, to me are just glorious. And I admit, I just feel very inadequate to try to expound on what they mean. Um, I love Handel's version of this verse in his masterpiece, just the Messiah. Just word for word, taking verse 6 and just musically expounding it helping us to see the glory. He doesn't really expound as far as changing the wording, but just mu musically just expounds the glory of this verse. I'm always moved to worship every time I hear that song. Well, let's look at what I would describe as the unmatched character of the Messiah. When the Baptist Catechism speaks of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, it sums it up under the categories, categories of his humiliation and his exaltation. When the Catechism describes the humiliation of Christ, here's what it says. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, which we talked about on Christmas Eve, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. All that's in the category of Christ's humiliation. So the first aspect of Christ's humiliation is spoken of for us in the first part of verse 6, and that is this. 
in his humiliation, the Messiah was born as a child. He was born. So why is Jesus' birth considered the first point of his humiliation? Well, you have to think about who the child was, who the child is. He is God, the creator, the sustainer of all things. The reason that we're continuing to breathe here is because Christ is sustaining our breath. He was sustaining his mother's breath. He's the one who created his mother. And so you have this creator and sustainer, the one who is eternal, the one who has no beginning, has no end. The almighty, all-powerful God was born as a child, humbled himself to come into this sinful world as a little helpless baby. We should also see a connection here with Isaiah's earlier prophecy, which is in chapter 7, verse 14, which says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. It's really interesting. The uh, chapters 7 through 12 of Isaiah are sometimes nicknamed the book of Emmanuel because Emmanuel shows up multiple times in those chapters. <coughs> well, the prophet says that this child is born to us is given to us. Well, one of the questions here is, who is us? Well, first, we need to consider the people of Galilee who experienced his life-changing ministry. But more specifically, really, it's all the people who live in the darkness of sin. It's all the people who live in the gloom of anguish. It's all the people who are oppressed and enslaved to sin and enslaved to the philosophies of the world. Of course, it's important to note here, Isaiah is including himself in this when he says the Son is given to us. Isaiah's hope was in the Messiah just as much as our hope is in the Messiah. So in his humiliation, the Messiah was born. He was given to sinful people like us. But most of this verse really speaks of the exalted Christ. So we next see that in his exaltation, the Messiah is, first of all, wonderful in his person, works, and suffering, as E.J. Young described it. The word wonderful is probably meant here as an adjective to describe the kind of counselor he is. That's how we normally read it. But it can also be a standalone description. And it's true to think that there is so much about Jesus Christ that is really a wonder to us. I mean, we just gave an amazing example of that when he said that he's the eternal son of God who came to earth as a baby. That is a wonder. The works he did are also a wonder. People marveled at his teaching. He performed miracles that were astonishing. Walking on water, feeding over 5,000, which is a few pieces of fish and bread, turning water into wine healing people who were lame and blind, casting out demons, raising people from the dead. Those are all things that speak of how full of wonder Christ is. And the intensity of his suffering, all that he endured, is another aspect of the wonder of Christ. But even more is the purpose behind his suffering. He did not suffer and die for his own sin, but as a substitute 
for others. And in so doing, he endured the wrath of God for sinners when he died on the cross. And that is such a mind-boggling wonder that people regularly deny that that's what was going on. People are not comfortable with saying that Jesus Christ endured the wrath of God on the cross. So they will say, well, he was dying as an example for us. They don't want to bring in the other part, the atoning aspect of his work. Well, Jesus was a perfect example in everything he did, which is another wonder. I mean, he's a perfect example in every aspect of his life and death. But he died as the wrath bearer for sinners. And that's an even greater thing to wonder and praise him for. So the fact that, and the fact that this description is the first one in the list, I think is a reminder that everything about the Messiah is full of wonder. Everything is. This is the beginning point for Isaiah in this passage. Well, not only is the Messiah wonderful in his exaltation, the Messiah is also a perfectly wise counselor. Perfectly wise counselor. He knows all things. I mean, all things. He is fully and completely wise. There is not a single thing that he does not fully know and fully understand. And his wisdom is in the context of one who is morally pure and perfect in every way. I mean, just exactly the kind of counselor that people in darkness need to have. In verses 7, in verse 7, we'll get to it, we are told of the Messiah as a king. One of the most important things that a king needs to have is wisdom. A king needs to be able to make good and wise decisions. He needs to have a significant amount of knowledge. Well, Christ has a fullness of knowledge in all things. And that makes Jesus Christ the perfect king. Being a wonderful, wise counselor also means that Jesus Christ is an authoritative teacher of the truth. He is truth. His word is truth. And that's exactly, again, who he is. He is the wise counselor. Next, we see that the Messiah is fully man and yet the mighty God. Jesus Christ came to earth as a real baby, as a true human being. But at the same time, he was and is mighty God. It's really interesting that the word for mighty can actually be translated as hero. Now, the Messiah is not a pretend hero like Superman or Captain America or something like that. He's also not a flawed hero like any man or woman would be. He is a truly perfect hero. He's the mighty God. And as the Messiah, he came to heroically save us from our sin. It takes a mighty God to save sinners. If Jesus Christ were not the mighty God, then he would never be able to be our Savior. But he is mighty God. Next, Isaiah calls him the eternal Father. So in his exaltation, the Messiah is an eternal Father to his people and the giver of eternal life. Now, this title emphasizes the fact that Christ is eternal, or as Micah described him, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He came to earth in time, but he is and always has been eternal God. The term father used here is not meant to confuse him with God the Father. 
I believe it speaks of the fact that Christ is the author or the father of eternal life for all who will receive him. He's the father of the great work of redemption that leads to our ultimate adoption as sons. Eternal Father also speaks of the kind of ruler he is. I mean, much is made in these verses, as we will see, about the government being on Christ's shoulders. He does not govern as a harsh dictator. He governs as a wonderfully wise father. Well, finally, in his exaltation, the Messiah is the only one who brings true peace. Only one who brings true peace. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. As our mediator, Christ is the one who accomplishes peace between God and man. He satisfies the wrath of God toward us by his death on the cross. He overcomes the resistance in man's heart and brings him to faith. So when a person has Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they have peace with God. It takes the Messiah, who is a wonder from every possible angle, to provide the blessings of light and joy and liberty to sinners. Let's look now at verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So in this verse, the focus moves more to the character of Christ's government or his kingdom. So we consider now the remarkable government of the Messiah. In verse 6, it says, the government will rest on his shoulders. Well, to think about that, we need to remind ourselves of what government is. There are four different categories of government. There is self-government. There is family government. There is church government. There is civil government all come under the category of government. We would have to say that Jesus Christ is the rightful ruler of all four realms of government. As to self-government, you and I need to submit to Jesus Christ personally as our Savior and Lord. As to family government, we need to submit to Christ in how we lead and how we, what the things that we do in our families. Jesus Christ is supposed to be the Lord of our families. As to church government, of course, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. The church is the body of Christ. And as to civil government, all civil magistrates are accountable to God for how they lead and how they govern. Every civil magistrate, we read in uh, Romans chapter 13, is described as a minister or a servant of God. So every aspect of government is placed on the shoulders of the Messiah. It doesn't rest on the shoulders of human ingenuity of popular opinion, political parties, cultural fads, worldly philosophies. Every aspect of government rests on the shoulders of the Messiah. E.J. Young described his government in this way, quote on your outline, the child is to be a king, a ruler, a sovereign. This government is the kingdom of grace, but also in widest extent the kingdom of nature and power. All the world is subject to the rule of the child. Fundamentally, the government of Christ, he says, is the kingdom of grace. So that's his rule in the hearts of men and women as Savior and Lord. But it doesn't stop there. 
every aspect of government from inside the human heart to all that goes on in the world of nature and the governments of men and all the world and every facet is subject to the rule of Christ. It's also important to note here, Christ is not attempting to govern. He is governing. He is king. Verse 7 describes really just a grand and superior and truly glorious kingdom. Well, the first thing we note about the kingdom of the Messiah is this. Christ rules over a growing kingdom. He rules over a growing kingdom. His kingdom is not instantaneous. It says that it's ever-increasing. Little by little, more and more, Christ is overcoming people's resistance to Him, and they are coming to submit to Him as their Savior King. The prophet Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, describes Christ's kingdom as beginning as a small stone and growing until it becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. And and that begins to happen in the time of the Roman Empire, which is when Christ came. Jesus does the same thing when he compares his kingdom to a mustard seed. Even though it's the smallest of seeds in the garden, it grows until it becomes the largest tree in the garden. Jesus says, that's what my kingdom is like. And we see it in Acts and the gospel. I mean, uh, Jesus begins with uh, 12 disciples. Once we come to Acts, there's a group of 120 who were gathered in Jerusalem. Then the Jerusalem church grew to include multiple thousands of people. And then it expands to Samaria. And then it expands to the Gentiles. Then it expands to the Roman Empire. And Christ's kingdom has continued to expand in the world. And there's more to come. It's ever increasing. And it grows in this way. Because it is the kingdom of the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, and the prince of peace. So Christ rules over a growing kingdom. Next we see that Christ rules in the hearts of men who receive him as Lord and Savior and thus brings peace. Verse 7 says, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. So in connection with the increase of Christ's government, there's an increase of peace. As we've already mentioned, it's Jesus Christ who is the Prince of Peace, and that is, uh, he's, the, he's the one who enables a person to become to have peace with God. And when a person is at peace with God, he, Christ rules in their heart. And as the number of people who are at peace with God increases, peace among men is to increase. That is why the gospel is sometimes called the gospel of peace. And this gospel of peace needs to be shared. It needs to be believed. It needs to be applied in our lives. So Christ must first rule in the heart of the individual. We can't expect to see our families changed. We can't expect to see effect in our church, in our nation, until personal lives are rightly ordered under the rule of Jesus Christ. Next, Isaiah makes it clear that Christ is the only rightful ruler since he is given the throne of David. So in further describing the government, the kingdom of the Messiah, Isaiah says it's on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Of course, Jesus Christ was a descendant of King David. We saw again last week in our study of Micah 5 that Messiah was, the fact that he was being born, was, was going to be born in Bethlehem 
was an allusion to the fact that Bethlehem was known as the city of David. And of course, we've spoken of this before, the angel Gabriel confirmed this to Mary when he told her she was going to be the mother of the Messiah. He says he will be great, he'll be called the Son of the Most High, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So the everlasting kingdom which outgrows and outlasts every earthly kingdom is the one in which the descendant of David reigns. Jesus Christ is the only one, the only one who can possibly fulfill that role. Nobody else can. So Jesus Christ is the only rightful ruler in your life and mine. He is the only rightful ruler for your family and my family. He is the only rightful ruler for the church. He is the only rightful ruler over civil government and the society in which it exists. Christ is the only rightful ruler over mankind in every realm. Well, as Isaiah continues to describe what his rule will look like, he tells us that Christ's rule is characterized by justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness. Verse 7 continues by saying that Christ would establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. When we think of good government, we think about proper laws and the right enforcement of those laws. That's what righteousness and justice basically are referring to. Every law that exists is the reflection of someone's morality. It's a reflection of what that society considers to be good or bad. The most foundational kind of law that there is is the law of God. And we find that nations, including ours, often fight against the law of God. And one of the clearest expressions of that fighting against the law of God is really Psalm 2. I want to read those verses for you, some of them anyway. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against His anointed, against His Messiah, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. End of the psalm. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Appropriate and very sobering counsel to every nation, including our own nation. But once again, we have to remember that this applies first and foremost to how each of us governs ourselves under the Lordship of Christ. If Jesus Christ is our King, then righteousness is going to be a distinctive characteristic of our life because that's what His government is. It's full of justice and righteousness. The next characteristic of Christ's government is this. Christ's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. The kingdom of the Messiah is described as a forevermore kingdom. The kingdoms of this world come and go. History makes it clear that governments rise and governments fall. When Christ is our Lord, we know that we are part of an everlasting kingdom. So when this world passes away, in its present form, or when our life comes to an end, as believers, we continue to be a vital part of the eternal kingdom of Christ. 
glorifying and enjoying the Lord forever and that forever kingdom. Finally, we read this in the last, this in the last phrase of verse 7, the zeal of a Lord of hosts will accomplish. This is one of the most amazing verses to me. What we see here is the sovereign Lord is zealously, zealously committed to the kingdom of Christ. When you're zealous for something, you are wholeheartedly committed to it. Here's how J.A. Alexander speaks of this phrase. He says, the mention of God's jealousy or zeal, it's the same idea here, as, procuring, as the procuring cause of this result affords a sure foundation for the hopes of all believers. His zeal is not a passion, but a principle of powerful and certain operation. Oftentimes, we can get quite excited about a new project we're beginning, and I may be more guilty of this than some of you are, but can get excited about a new project or a new idea or something you want to work on, and we can stay with it for several weeks, maybe even a few months. But then it becomes kind of common to lose some of our enthusiasm, begin to let some things slide. That will not happen in regards to the kingdom of Christ. Christ's kingdom will grow. It will increase. We get frustrated with slow progress. We can get easily discouraged because of increased opposition. But God is our hope. He is jealous for His own honor, for the reputation of His name, for His glory to be seen and enjoyed in the world. That zeal of the Lord of hosts will never change. His zeal does not fluctuate with time like ours does. The sovereign Lord is zealously committed to the growth and advancement of Christ's kingdom. That was true when this prophecy was given 2,700 years ago. It was true when Christ came into the world 2,000 years ago and the majority of the people rejected Him. It has been true as the gospel has slowly spread to nations all over the world to an extent that has never happened in history. The zeal of the Lord for Christ's kingdom is just as strong when people hear the gospel and respond in faith. It's strong then when people hear the gospel and respond in faith, but it's just as strong when believers are persecuted and put to death for their faith. The zeal for His kingdom doesn't wane. It's just as true this week as it was last week or last year or whatever time you want to look at in history. And there's more growth to come. There is more difficulty to endure. But we can be absolutely certain that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish these things. Lord, we want to thank you for your word, an amazing word. I thank you for just glorious prophecies about the Messiah that we have especially been singing about, thinking about, celebrating this month. Again, some of these descriptions are so overwhelming to me. I mean, it's, uh, it's almost like it's just beyond what I can even imagine. But I want to thank you for the truth that we can understand. I thank you so much for the light that Christ gives us. I thank you for the joy that he gives us. I thank you for the liberty that he gives to us. 
I thank you for what a glorious Savior we have, a wonderful Counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting Father, a Prince of Peace, just a glorious Savior. And we thank you so much for your government, the kind of government that is, that is based on what is true and righteous. It's a, it's, it's a government that is ever-growing, that is increasing. It's a government that deals with every aspect of life and especially deals with our own hearts. Thank you for your work in actually subduing us so that we would receive you as our King and our Savior. Oh, how we need you. Lord, I ask that you would also encourage us because I know I get discouraged. I get discouraged by looking at just my own life and thinking I should be so much further along than I am. I can get discouraged by what's going on in the world at large. But Lord, help us never to forget that you are zealously committed to every aspect of the growth of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. What could be better? What could be more encouraging than that? Lord, remind us of that when we get discouraged. Remind us of that. If you're one who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ, if he is not the Lord of your heart, then you need to receive him. The government rests on his shoulders, and that includes what you do in your life. That includes your purpose in life, your direction in life, your decision in life. Everything is included there. Most importantly, it includes who your Lord is and who your Savior is, which, should, which has to be Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is not your Savior and Lord, I invite you to receive him. A prayer like this will be a way to start. Real, Lord, I realize that I am not what you've called me to be. Sin is very real in my life. There is so much in my life that I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it. But Lord, I want to submit my life to Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I want him to be that glorious, wise counselor, king that I need. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment to Christ, you can make a note on your, make a note on your tear-off, or you can reach out to us on the website. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. If you want to look up the, our closing hymn, and um, the hymn is number 374.